0: taking it to a
2: do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and of course whatever your favourite podcasting app is. And don't forget you can follow us also on Twitter with the at Show tag. My name's Michael Steinel. I'm joined today by my co-hosts Kay Winigal and Natalie Brooknell. Hello, Kay and Natalie.
1: Hello. Hello, how are you?
2: Good. Our guest today is academic and activist Mark Hudson. He originally hails from Adelaide and is in the final year at the moment of his PhD research at the Sustainable Consumption Institute at the University of Manchester. The research he's undertaking is concerned with the responses, technical, political, economic and social, made by the coal industry companies in Australia and in the United States, in response to climate change since the late 80s. He's keen to produce work that is both intellectually regu- rigorous and socially useful. He's a regular contributor to the online journal The Conversation, for those that read it, and also shares his thoughts and insights online through his blog the, and the Manchester Climate Monthly. Mark, welcome and thanks for joining us today. G'day, Matt. So, Mark, in a previous life, you worked as a physiotherapist in the National Health Service in the UK.
0: How'd I did. I, be... I taught people how to walk on artificial legs. <laughs> well, may, Ooh, maybe I think I relevant. need one of those.
2: <laughs> uh, yes, yes, we've got Kay back, who's just been hobbling around Cutchers for the last
0: three weeks. So do how did your you end up... Tells you, Kay. What's that? Do what your physio tells you to do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for that advice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what brought you to your PhD in the coal industry then, Mark?
0: Well, I've been a climate change activist since... Or oh, 2006, I was involved in um, Climate Camp, which was the Australian, uh, sorry, the UK nonviolent direct action group, and we were at uh, a big coal-fired power station that year. Um, and i had been aware of and concerned about climate change since the 80s, because I was here in Australia back when the first wave came. Um, and then the opportunity came up to study at uh, the University of Manchester, and you know, I grabbed it with both hands.
3: Mark, it's Natalie here. Hello, Natalie. uh, Nice to talk to you again. So can you give us a bit of background then about the coal industry in Australia and and set the scene for us on on your studies? Sure.
0: Okay, so uh, there's always been coal dug up in Australia under White Settlement, goes back to sort of Newcastle uh, in the late 1800s. But until the 1950s or 60s, late 50s, there wasn't really an export market for coal, because coal's very heavy, it's hard to dig up and, and transport. But then the, the Japanese were reindustrializing after World War Two, and Australia became their favoured uh, place to get their black coal, partly for the quality of it and partly for the sort of economic and political stability of Australia. And the two, uh, the, the Japanese industries for making steel and for electricity production and the Australian export um, Coal market, especially Queensland and Victoria, uh, Queensland and New South Wales, black coal, they sort of grew in lockstep. And there's a wonderful book by a guy called Jeffrey Wilson on this. And then Japan was a very, very important market, still is, um, until the late 1980s. But since then, the Australians have started selling more and more coal to uh, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, lately India and China. But your listeners should be aware that actually. The amount of coal we sell to China is quite small and the Chinese only buy it when it's cheaper than what they produce themselves. China doesn't need Australian coal to keep going. They have plenty of their own.
3: That's quite contrary to our common perception about it, isn't
0: it? Yeah, it is. And I think what the coal industry is keen to do is to quote one of their early advertising campaigns is to claim that they are absolutely essential, that the sky would fall if the Australian coal industry wasn't digging it up and selling it.
1: Is that the same in India?
0: I'm not an expert on India at all. I think Um,
1: India does produce some of its own coal.
0: Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. India produces a lot of its own coal, but there are all sorts of bottlenecks and problems um, with production there and lots of environmental um, campaigns by people living in in towns and villages near the coal. So um, there's a lot of resistance to in within India to the domestic production of coal mm-hmm. but I'm not an expert on India by any stretch
1: but it's I mean the fact is as you just pointed out that um, the Chinese don't need our coal as much as we think they do and possibly India doesn't either because they do produce their own coal
0: and they all around the world people are, or governments are looking at um, looking closely at renewables uh, which because, I mean, partly because renewables don't come with nearly as many or any health consequences in terms of air quality. Mm. So in China, uh, and and obviously we've just had in Delhi the smog, but in China, it's a major, major concern for the Chinese Communist Party because people don't like their one and only child getting asthma and um, suffering. And the Chinese government really needs to make sure that the air is clean, otherwise they've got a bit of a middle-class rebellion on their hands.
1: Mm. Yep. Um, Mark, your research, as Mike mentioned in the introduction, includes the response technical, political, economic and social mm-hmm. made by the coal industry companies in Australia yep. and, uh, and in Europe, the United States. How do you go about the task of investigating the strategic responses of the Australian coal industry to climate change?
0: It's very hard to get Interviews with active coal industry people, and I've not succeeded in that. And so what you're doing is you're looking at things like the annual reports, the press releases, uh, secondary uh, memoirs of of politicians and uh, business people, uh, and building timelines of what happened when. Uh, lobbying is notoriously hard to study because it happens behind closed doors. What's been interesting of late is that the the, the behind closed doors stuff is still going on but since about 2007-8 it's been supplemented with very very visible and vigorous advertising campaigns uh, because they lost control of, of being able to keep the issue of climate change in a box um, so it's a mix of a uh, newspaper report looking at the the statements of the coal companies looking at their newspaper adverts looking at memoirs things like that
3: so what have those investigations yielded so far mark what what have you found out and um, what sort of outcomes are we looking at from these studies
0: from my studies oh, there'll be some articles in um in peer reviewed journals behind paywalls, but there'll also be blog posts and things under conversation. sorry to be cynical um,
3: <laughs> so what 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 are the really concrete things that that you've found and that our listeners can benefit from sure
0: sure. Um, the first understanding, and I think any of your listeners who's over about forty will remember this is that there was an early wave of concern about climate change in the late '80s early '90s public concern and, and political response that then died down until sort of two thousand and six seven there was another big wave that climaxed in julie gillard 's um, emissions trading scheme but even when Gill- the Gillard government was trying to push through or did push through that emissions trading scheme or the great big tax on everything, they were still very, very supportive of the coal industry. And I think what we need to realise, and I'm sure your listeners do, is that support for the coal industry, both for domestic consumption and export, is bipartisan uh, and has been going on for a very long time. Then the other thing to look at is the technological response. Um, Carbon capture and storage is the main one. Um, I could go on for hours about the the idea of clean coal because it predates carbon capture and storage one of the arguments that the coal industry uses is that australian coal the black coal is low in sulfur and and low in other sort of byproducts uh, and therefore it's uh, advantageous and in fact moral for us to be selling us selling this stuff to to other places carbon capture and storage you can really date interest in it from about 2002 to 2010 which coincidentally, is the peak era of concern about climate change. And since then, <laughs> there's really actually very little interest and push for turning carbon capture and storage into something that, that might become real. It, it's still on the drawing board, more or less. Um, the other thing that I'd say is that the environmental organisations, big and small, have been unable to get the politicians to... Make any big promises and then even more severely to get the politicians to keep their promises because environmental social movements tend to be good at making a noise, getting, extracting a promise if they can, and then hoping that the politicians and the bureaucrats will will follow through. But what we've learned over the last 25 years is that the politicians and the bureaucrats do not follow through.
3: It's not an automatic assumption you can make.
0: It's absolutely... It, the assumption that you should make is that the promise won't be kept and that therefore you have to see your activism as a marathon and not a sprint. And, and the getting of the promise, which is usually where lots of activist groups think that their work is done, is only the very... It, it's only the first 10% of a much longer and more difficult process.
1: Okay. So, Mark, you've um, just started talking about carbon capture and storage. Mm. Um, um, We were at a um, meeting recently called the Potential Pathways to Decarbonisation, and one of the people that were presenting there was Jeremy Bentham from Head of Shell Scenarios, I think he is, in in the corporate management area. And he was suggesting that um, there would still be about 25% of coal being used energy in, for energy worldwide you know in, in the next 40 or 50 years or, or less than or, you know 30 to 50 years um and he said the carbon capture and storage was going to be a vital part of that whole equation of transitioning to renewable energy but the the most um organizations private organizations that don't want to get involved in that and un- unless there's a an economic incentive to do that. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Two things. I think first we need to always be cautious about predictions about the future and what percentage of our energy will come from this, or predictions about anything, predictions about who's going to win an election, for example. Um, And the International Energy Agency uh, predictions and the BP statistical review predictions are not perfect. There, There are a series of assumptions in there, about how things will work out. Um, so it may well be that the coal industry is providing 25% of electricity needs in 30 years. I I, I can't say. I just would caution people to be healthily sceptical. Um, the next thing to say is that the coal industry desperately needs the idea of uh, carbon capture and storage because otherwise it's naked. And. There's a Canadian academic called James Meadowcroft who argues that carbon capture and storage needs to be always five years in the future for the coal industry, because if it's proven not to work, then the coal industry is genuinely naked in the face of climate change. If it's proven to work, then they have to start implementing it, and that would cost a fortune. So the ideal solution is always to have it five years away. It might work. It might work. It might work. Well, that that, it,
1: it does make sense, and that fits in with the fact that they're waiting for some sort of monetary benefit. For yeah, look,
0: the, the whole, the, I went to Ross last year when he came and gave a speech in Adelaide, and I said, but if there's a price signal that's high enough to make carbon capture and storage work financially, let's say, pick, picking a number out of the hour, $100 a ton, won't that same price signal make renewables such an attractive option. And if it's a, if it's a straight fight, then in the investment money is surely going to go to renewables. And he didn't, as I, re- my memory may be faulty, but he didn't really answer the question. He kind of conceded the point because price on its own won't drive a move towards carbon capture and storage. And even the CFMEU, the, the trade union, was arguing this 10 years ago. And they were saying that in the same way that we needed a we have a renewables target. We should have a electricity generated from coal with CCS target. And now they lost that battle with the within the Rudd government in 2008 because the Rudd government was also dealing with the global financial crisis and because some of the big companies uh, didn't come on board with the CFMEU's attempt to get that through. But price signal on its own is not going to drive a push towards carbon capture and storage.
1: When you're talking about carbon capture and storage, you're talking about it in relation to um, producing energy. But if you're talking about carbon capture and storage in terms of uh, industry, for instance, you know, the steel industry.
0: Yeah, steel or cement or whatever. Yep. Yeah,
1: yep. then that's another story, isn't it?
0: Yeah, but it's a much smaller story and it's kind of irrelevant to the big picture. Um, the idea, the, the, it, would, it would only be relevant if you had been doing this 20 years ago and then you could take the technological, and financial, regulatory lessons that you learned by doing it with steel or cement or whatever and then parlay them out into the larger energy system. But because the larger energy system model no longer works the ccs advocates have now sort of retreated to doing it for steel and cement and so forth in the hope of just keeping the show on the road keeping people talking about ccs
2: you're listening to the beyond zero show on 3cr in melbourne this is mark hudson we're interviewing today he's joining us from adelaide he's doing a phd in sustainable consumption at the sustainable consumption institute at the university of manchester Mark, just continuing with this um, uh, conference a session that Kay mentioned, the potential pathways to decarbonisation that was in Melbourne yesterday, um, I think it's actually worth referring that to, custom, uh, to, to our listeners um, because it was by the um, Grattan Institute and it yep. was recorded and if they can get hold of it, I think they'll find it very interesting. It did have Professor Ross Garneau there too that you just mentioned and, and Tony Wood. Um, and Sarah Bice, and it was a very interesting discussion. Mm. This Jeremy Bentham, the head of uh, Shell Scenarios, did address that problem. We were just talking about uh, about the need to continue using fossil fuels. And he said there's some things, such as um, airlines in particular, a good example, that you can't do any other way that we know of at the moment, so that you have to have the carbon capture and storage to, to compensate for that. You need that energy density of fuel. He said the technology is simple and there now. All that's stopping them is a carbon price, and they've been screaming out for a carbon price, he said, since 2000, um, because, OK, they can do a couple of sample plants, but to put the two to 3,000 plants in that we need, he says they need that driver. They- Did
0: anyone talk to him about ZeroGen in uh, Queensland that fell over not because of a carbon price but because the geological structures didn't work? The distances between where you're generating the electricity near a city and where you're going to store it hundreds and hundreds of miles i'd be i'd be really interested for him to say no uh,
2: no one challenged him on that fact mm. I, I really want to say um it, is it that simple is it a known technology because I, I thought that it wasn't and and that seems to me a fund of fundamental flaw in the way we're heading in the ipcc reports it, assume carbon capture and storage well
0: if it that easy, how come there's only two working plants in the world, and both of them come with, um, and when I say working, I I mean that route with quote marks around it. Mm -hmm. Um, Advocates of any technology will tell you that it's always going to work seamlessly and perfectly. So, you know, when you your readers will have had experience of, you know, Windows ninety five, or listeners rather, Windows ninety five, or a new mm-hmm. car. There are always major, major teaching problems. It never works as it's supposed to. Yeah. Um, it always takes longer. You know, I'm saying always, but most of the time, um, the different little bits of carbon capture and storage technology do exist in different places. But stitching them all together and scaling up to capture a huge proportion of the emissions that come from burning coal for energy and for steel making is a completely different proposition.
2: Well, well the, the thing that always gets me is we're essentially talking about building a reverse of the entire petrochemical industry, the largest industry mankind's ever built, and doing it in record time.
0: What you just said. Mm. And when we're, doing, when we're spending all of that money and all of that time, that's money and time that we're not spending on renewables, for example. It's kind of hard. The CCS boosters have been hard at work since the early 90s. The first international conference that talked a lot about CCS was in early 1992. And as part of my PhD research, you know, I've gone and I've read some of the speeches. And uh, also there was a big conference in Sydney in 1991 about, quote, clean coal, unquote, and sort of the technological options. And CCS was one of several things on the table then, not a big thing. And it's it's just startling to see now, with the benefit of 25 years of hindsight, sort of, you know, the, op, the, the, the optimism that did not come to pass. And I, I swear to you, I could take sentences and paragraphs from then, scrub out the date, and it would match up with what you were being told last night.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mark, we know of the plant that's um, no longer operating in Australia, the CCS plant, and that was just a pilot plant, mm. as far as I know. Can you tell us about the other two you just mentioned?
0: Well, there's um, Boundary Dam up in um, Canada, which gets its financial viability from two things, a massive grant from the Canadian government and also the fact that it sells the carbon dioxide for what's called enhanced oil recovery. So you push liquefied CO2 down into an oil well and that pushes the remaining oil that was going to be too hard to get to up and out. So that's not really such a huge carbon dioxide saving there, is it? (laughs) Um, And then there's the one in the Southern Company are doing uh, in Klemper County. Now, I've stopped paying attention to that because I've got other things on my plate. But the last I saw that that was that that was behind schedule and over budget as almost any large scale project. Technological project it does go over budget and behind schedule. Whether it's an airport, a tunnel, whatever, you know, it's, it's very common for something with lots of moving parts to to fall behind.
2: <laughs> Mark, we um, we've got about six minutes left, and yep. we had two other topics we'd love to cover with you. This is exciting. Go ahead. Um, so the Donald Trump ascendancy yeah. in America. Um, you've you've just put out a conversation article. Talk to us about that, please.
0: So it looks like Donald Trump will sabotage the international climate negotiations, probably not by pulling the U.S. out altogether, but simply by sending the office junior um, who has no power to negotiate and not following through on domestic emissions reductions and therefore other countries will say well if the u.s isn't acting why should we
2: and australia would be prime candidates for that on well that's form. what i
0: speculate but it's only speculation because i don't know the future so hmm. the last time that this happened a u.s president just pulling out altogether was george w bush in march of 2001 he said like kyoto's not in our interest john howard waited uh, 16 months but then on earth day 2002 uh, he said we're not going to ratify kyoto even though australia had been given the sweetest deal imaginable as
2: naomi klein said australia raising their finger to the rest of the world
0: yeah and and my fear is that if and when trump pulls out and the unf c process decides into chaos this will give encouragement to the right wing i don't like the term right wing but the, the people within um the Liberal Party and the National Party, and within the coalition, who either don't believe in climate change at all, or think it's an overblown threat, or think that it's real but it would uh, hurt the Australian economy to do anything. And, and you'll have another situation where Australia has made a promise, but is under actually no pressure to keep it because everyone's beating up on the Americans. Meanwhile, Turnbull gets the um, kudos of having ratified. I think what's different between 2000 and now is that it's now. A relatively large constituency in Australia of academics and business people, alongside the social movements who want stuff to happen and who won't fall back asleep the way that happened in in the early 2000s. But on the flip side, you also have a re-energized climate denial lobby like, uh, you know, Malcolm Roberts, and I, I don't think mm. anyone can really beat me up for calling Malcolm Roberts a climate denialist. he, no, not he not literally came oh, out with a report of saying it's a hoax. It's I think he I think he blames the Chinese
1: well with the with the swing that's occurred in America, and it's also been shown to happen in Australia, it's been shown to happen in England, Europe. yep, those sort of climate deniers and that sort of action seems to be likely to continue to happen, doesn't it?
0: yeah uh, when when you're scared as people are um and about their jobs and their future, they retreat into relatively simple solutions and and it's going to get extremely interesting when people, can no longer deny climate change and realise that it's imminent and enormous.
2: So on that topic, Mark, you've spent years, you've used, years of experience as a climate activist. Yes. and You've put considerable thought into those processes. And arguably, in the climate movement, we've failed significantly. Where do you think climate activism is at?
0: I think it's in a pretty bad way. Uh, I, I've read a few PhD theses and master's theses. Are we talking about Australia here or the Let, UK? Let's or, talk about Australia, if you Yeah, can. OK. Then I should preface my remarks by saying I'm not an expert, um, just because I've read a few theses and paid close attention. I've not been a climate activist in Australia, with a partial exception of the year 2011. Um... My sense, but I'll give you an anecdote. Um, Oxfam put on an event in Adelaide called Voices from the Climate Frontline with uh, a woman from the Torres Strait Islands, another woman from Fiji and an Oxfam guy. And there's about 70 people in the audience and the average age was about 70. There were maybe five young people Mm. and everyone else was retired. And this is a pattern I've seen repeated at other events I've been to in Australia. So my question is, where are the young people? Now, I'm all, I, you know, obviously, there's the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, but yes. I, I don't see them at these events. I think the movement had the stuffing knocked out of it by campaigning to get Labour to put forward some sort of climate action under rug. And then there was the Say Yes campaign in 2011, which I was just revisiting with a friend last night and talking about its failing. It's very hard, though, because... If you're a climate change activist and you understand that while rooftop solar and community solar, community wind are all important, they're not going to bend the emissions curve down fast enough and they're not going to reduce atmospheric concentrate or reduce the increase in atmospheric concentration, then you have to think, well, I have to lobby my state government or my federal government. But if your state, if your federal government is is <laughs> the liberal one, then you've got no hope. But if your federal government is the Labour one, well, what we saw under Redden-Gillard was a very small commitment to radical climate or no commitment to radical climate action. You know, an emissions trading scheme doesn't, isn't going to reduce emissions fast enough. So I have a lot of sympathy for climate activists who, who don't know what to do, who, who feel a bit lost and stuck. But I will say this, that when I go to meetings and events in 2011 and, and now 2016, I find them very unwelcoming, I find them very cliquey, I find the organisers haven't really put a lot of thought into what it's like to be a new person coming into the room who doesn't know people Hmm. and again I was talking about this last night with a friend, when I was here in 2011 I was on sabbatical.
2: Mark, we have run out of time, it sounds like a topic that we need to have you back for on this, uh, the whole area of activism and how we could be more effective.
0: I, I will send you um, some writings on it, and I would love to be back.
2: Thank you so much. Um, thanks, <laughs> Sorry thanks. to talk
0: for so long. No, it's, it's wonderful.
2: Thanks The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions Think Tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. And if you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, you can go to bze.org.au and click on the podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at tech show tag. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week. And don't forget to listen to our sister program every Monday afternoon at 5pm on 3CR. It's not a product. It's a technology.
0: It's an education challenge.
1: A regenerative suspension.
0: There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests.
3: All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that.
1: You've
0: got something that's transformational solar window in a
1: can beyond zero global warming
2: science solutions and action
0: taking it to a do-it-yourself level step three is finding there's a tactic
1: when everyone believes it could be true that if all the people work collectively there just might be something we can do and everything can change